From a private space station mission to the latest NASA budget, the headlines happening in space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The first all-private crew to head to the space station is currently conducting science experiments on board. It's a big milestone for commercial space, and it's the first of many developments in the private sector taking on a bigger lift when it comes to low Earth orbit. Coming up, what's ahead for commercial space? Also, Amazon is getting into the satellite internet constellation biz in a big way, with a huge purchase of rockets. What impact will this have on the launch industry? And the Biden administration submitted its budget proposal for NASA's next budget. And it's a big one. Who's the big winner if it passes? And those aren't the only space news headlines worth talking about. It's been a busy few weeks on the space beat. We'll chat with Anthony Colangelo. He covers spaceflight and the aerospace industry on his podcast, Main Engine Cutoff. A space news roundup that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. A crew of four private citizens launched to the space station last week on SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule. It's the first all-civilian mission to head to the space station, and it's not just a joyride for the passengers, most of which spent upwards of $55 million each for a seat. They'll be conducting critical science experiments during their eight-day stay on the station. We talked previously about the impacts this mission will have on gathering health science from space, but the mission is also laying groundwork for future commercial missions to the station, with the ultimate goal of creating a private space station in low Earth orbit. It's just one of the many news stories circulating the space beat these days. To talk more about this mission and the other space news stories of interest, we're joined by Anthony Colangelo. He covers space flight and the aerospace industry on his podcast, Main Engine Cutoff. Anthony, welcome back to the show. Oh, I'm happy to be back. You know I love coming on here, especially when there's such a good list of topics to talk about. There is so much to talk about, so let's jump straight into it, and we're going to start with Axiom. Um, this is the Houston-based company, organized the first all-private crew mission to the International Space Station. Uh, the crew force currently on board the station now. Uh, let's talk about the groundwork to get us here. Um, well, it turns out Commercial Crew is living up to its name, Commercial. Uh, this is definitely, you know, on the back of that, that uh, SpaceX has now a fleet of spaceships that they fly humans to space. Um, I mean, it's impressive how many people they've put up into space and we're coming up on two years since uh, Bob and Doug took their flight to the ISS, and here we are with the second private flight of a Dragon. Um, so definitely all that work has has gone into them establishing a rhythm of these flights. Uh, they, they're notably you know, turning down the production line on Dragon 2s uh, after this new one that, that'll fly on the next crewed flight coming up in a couple of weeks uh, because they've been able to refurbish these vehicles and keep keep them flying, which helps bring down costs and makes things like this more accessible. But on the other end of it, Axiom, you know, I think everyone likes to put in the headlines, Elon Musk's SpaceX launches people to the ISS, but Axiom bought this entire mission. You know, Axiom bought this flight and is selling these tickets to people. They've got an employee on uh, the, so, you know, it's not for tourists, it's an employee. He's actually working. This is his job. Uh, Mike L.A., he's a longtime NASA astronaut. So Axiom has done a lot of legwork to establish a relationship with the ISS program that allows them to do these flights it is a big organizational problem for the ISS. Not problem, I should say, but it's a busy place up there. There's cargo ships coming and going all the time. There's crew flights now very regularly to the um, U.S. side of the, of the station. So just managing that traffic is getting kind of complicated. So to find these slots of a week in there where you can fit uh, a private mission in to 
stimulate the commercial economy is is a big deal for NASA. It's a big priority. Otherwise, they would just say, we're busy up here, you know, find somewhere else to fly. But it's clearly a priority for commercial crew to proliferate the commercialization of space. So many different angles here that made that possible. Uh, and obviously, Axiom Space looking to the future, trying to develop their own commercial space stations is a very relevant topic today with the war in Ukraine upending just about every connection between Russia and the rest of the ISS partners. Uh, so it's only looking more important into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, just how big of a milestone is this for a company like Axiom to do this? Because there are so many long-term things on the horizon, right? This is this is a big deal, you know, that they sent up this this crew to the International Space Station. But really, it's just a small step in this plan for the privatization of low-Earth orbit, right? I mean, kind of walk me through... You mentioned a bit why this is important, but commercial space stations have been on the drawing board even before diplomatic ties between the U.S. and Russia crumbled. Um, yeah, absolutely. What's the long-term I, and plan? Actually, it, it's just to throw it back to history a little bit, it's very relevant to uh, in 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea and some of the sanctions that came out of that um, actually spurred changes in space policy, particularly around commercial crew. It was struggling to get funding uh, in those early days, and after 2014, when things, you know, we started to see the cracks in the foundation between Russia and the rest of the ISS partnership, Congress stepped up and started funding the commercial crew program at that point, which is why we were a couple years behind schedule on that. But it took that external influence, uh, you know, it's kind of like the, the trope of the sci-fi movies where the aliens invade and all of a sudden we love each other and stop fighting over oil and borders and, you know, metals and all that stuff. Um, it took that external influence, and we're in a similar spot here. Commercial space stations have been something that NASA has been talking up uh, really since the beginning of the Trump administration, when Jim Bridenstine was the NASA administrator, that began to be a program that they started requesting a couple million dollars a year for, and we're only getting, you know, 15 million instead of 100. Um, but now we see them getting full funding for these commercial space stations in light of these changes, because it does seem like with the ISS getting older, it's pushing 20, 30 years in some spots. Um, we know, you know, the hardware on the Russian side is is having all sorts of leaks and issues, uh, so we know the the timeline is there that we've got to start figuring out a backup plan. And there's these companies that now see, with lowering launch costs, with an increased interest in going to space, they see a business opportunity to actually build out these space stations. And NASA has a vested interest to be their number one customer. Um, and I think a lot of times, uh, not necessarily in the, the space nerd press, but in the, the mainstream press, um, it, it maybe is a little confused about why is NASA giving money to these private companies when they could just be doing it themselves? Uh, but really for NASA, it is so that they can get cheaper services because they can be one of many customers rather than having to run the whole program themselves, hire everyone to work on it, buy all the materials themselves. If they can you know, look at, look at the launch services market, for instance, they, they helped fund SpaceX in its early days by delivering you know, contracts that SpaceX has to deliver on to get cargo to the space station. And what they got out of that was the cheapest heavy lift launch vehicle the world's ever seen. And now they're launching missions to the moon, to Mars, to Jupiter. There's all sorts of missions on the docket for SpaceX in the near future that, you know, SpaceX used that early funding to build this launch services market. And the hope is that for the human spaceflight side, the same thing can happen. NASA provides a really good runway for these companies to know that they have an anchor tenant of sorts. But the companies also know that's not how they can survive solely. So they need to be able to fill the NASA needs and the ESA and, and Canadian Space Agency needs, but also have an eye on the larger market because we don't know exactly what NASA will need in the future, and you can't rely on that being steady because things change. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about that launch service market. Um, 
Amazon announced it has selected launch providers for its internet satellite constellation. Um, this announcement came um, f- a few weeks ago. Um, it was a big order. I mean, <laughs> walk me through uh, what Amazon announced and all these different rockets that are going to be launching uh, its commercial internet satellites. This is for their satellite internet constellation called Kuiper. The Kuiper Project Kuiper, I guess that would be the official name. So I've been calling this Kuiper Mania because... Uh, they ordered 83 launches of uh, from three different companies, That's and this is in addition. Lot. It's a ton of launches, um, and this is in addition to nine Atlas V launches that they bought. I think about a year ago, they bought those from United Launch Alliance. So, uh, this is a huge deal. They did not buy any launches from SpaceX, which is a thing that people bring up a lot. Um, they did buy a bunch of launches. Let me pull up the actual numbers here. They bought uh, 38 launches on Vulcan Centaur from United Launch Alliance. 18 launches on Ariane 6, which is the European uh, launch vehicle that's coming online within the next year or so. And then they bought 12 launches from Blue Origin's New Glenn with an option for 15 more. So uh, they're spreading the love around the heavy lift market. And importantly for these vehicles, they're all, they, none of them have flown yet. We're all, you know, a year, two years out from their first launch. And uh, they, you know, at the exception of Blue Origin, the others have not really signed a lot of commercial launch deals. They've had a couple of launches in their manifest. On the European side, it was mostly institutional launches, which means uh, European governmental missions or scientific missions. And on the ULA side, they've sold a lot of vehicles to uh, the Department of Defense here in the U.S., a couple to um, effectively the the NASA missions that fly cargo to the space station, but very few commercial missions. And that's an important part, like we were just talking about, to keep your business uh, flowing. So Amazon comes in with the need to launch... 3,000 satellites over the next nine years. Uh, now they've cut that down to, what is it? Uh, let me do math in my head real quick. Five years, I think they have. Uh, till, or no, seven years, I guess it would be, if I can straighten out what I know from the FCC. Um, so we knew they were going to need a ton of launch capacity. And I think, you know, knowing Amazon and, and their reputation of being kind of ruthless when it comes to negotiations, if they're looking at the launch market, I think they see three launch providers here that need commercial launches which means that Amazon can probably come in with all, if not all, most of the leverage in that negotiation to make sure that they get either better pricing from these companies for such a big bulk order, better schedule priority, since schedule is such a big part of the Kuiper rollout here. And then uh, they've also gotten a lot of investment from the companies themselves. So ULA, the United Launch Alliance, they're going to be building a new mobile launch platform. They're buying a second boat to ship rocket stages to Florida. They're investing a lot to make sure that they can fly 20 to 25 times a year to get these satellites up. So if Amazon were to go to SpaceX and try to buy some launches to deploy these satellites, a lot of people say SpaceX wouldn't fly them because they're their competitor. But that isn't true. SpaceX is flying OneWeb. They fly a lot of commercial uh, communications satellites. If you're looking at communications, SpaceX flies most of the competition for Starlink. So that is really not, not the fact. I think what it is is that Number one, SpaceX is a little busy. I'm not sure if you've noticed how many launches are flying <laughs> out of your backyard. Um, but number two, I think you know Amazon rightly saw that if they're looking at the market, there's three competitors here that have capacity and that you have leverage over to make sure that you get what you need out of the deal. Uh, and for these companies, it's it's only upside to be able to sell you know, up to 38 Vulcan centaurs is, is a pretty unbelievable amount of uh, Vulcans. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Vulcan before we have to head to a break. Um, one of the launchers you did mention is ULA's Vulcan rocket. Um, you had um, ULA CEO Tori Bruno on your, your other show you host, or you co-host Off Nominal. So I'm going to pick your, your brain about uh, your chat with Tori, who he's always a, a great person to talk to. 
Um, where are we in the timeline of the Vulcan rocket? How, how close are, am I to seeing it launch in my backyard, as you say? <laughs> We're getting pretty close, but number one, bone to pick with Tori. He lied to me on the show. He told he told me he sold thirty five Vulcans already, and then the next week they sold another thirty eight. So he was, you know, <laughs> come on, Tori. Uh, that was just, you know, you're hiding some good stuff there. But um, so what we're waiting on is is Blue Origin, uh, Jeff Bezos's company, to get the BE four engines built and delivered for that first launch. They have a couple of engines on the qualification stand at their Texas uh, test site. They are apparently going really well with that testing. And what it comes down to is they need the engines that are going to be ready for flight to get to Florida, be integrated with the stage on Vulcan, or I guess get to Alabama, be integrated with the stage that will actually take the flight, ship that to Florida, and get going. Now, they say they're going to have one off by the end of the year. It seems tight if they don't have the engines yet. If they're coming in this summer, I think we could be, you know, maybe early 2023 is what we're looking at. Maybe, you know, late winter, early spring, uh, just considering how much testing, you know, we're seeing I'm sure we'll get to the SLS testing that's happening on the launch pad. Vulcan has to go through some of that as well. So uh, I would say within the years is, is a pretty comfortable amount of time that you'll see a Vulcan. Mm-hmm. And, and you asked Tori about the his his insight into the future of the spaceflight industry. Um, what can he expect? It was interesting to, to hear, you know, he, he does see, we asked, there's a lot of people that are concerned that there's not enough places to go in space or enough things to do in space because everyone's working on a launch vehicle. There are something like 120, 130 small launch companies working on vehicles today. Um, There are four, five, six heavy lift vehicles that are under development right now. So there's just a lot of people working on launch. And if you ask a lot of the launch companies that are operating today, not a lot of satellites to fly right now. Uh, And SpaceX is flying a lot of people, but not as many people as a lot of us would like to see go to space. So Tori definitely is is aware that there is a short-term, you know, oversupply of launch. But I think he's more hopeful that once we do start making it out to cislunar space and building up some infrastructure there, that in 10, 20 years, there's not going to... As he said, there won't be enough lift, uh, which is what I like to think when I'm in the gym. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's what he thinks when he looks 10 or 20 years into the future for ULA. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're talking with Anthony Colangelo. He covers space flight and the business of space on his podcast, Main Engine Cutoff. We'll talk more about the latest space news headlines when we return. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're joined by Anthony Colangelo. He covers space flight and the business of space on his podcast, Main Engine Cutoff. Uh, Anthony, before the break, we were talking about the commercial space flight industry, but I want to turn to the civilian space sector for a bit. Um, the Biden administration submitted its budget proposal for NASA, and it's a big one. Um, what are we talking about here? So a lot of the, the sections of the budget are not particularly notable, um, and there's certainly the fact that when the budget is submitted to Congress by the president, there's a lot of times when Congress will ignore that completely and write their own thing, so uh, it tends to feel like fan fiction a lot of times. Uh, but on the NASA side, there are some things that I'm, I was curious to see how they would, you know, what they do request does shape how they're thinking about these different uh, projects. So. We mentioned earlier commercial space stations and the situation with Russia right now. I wanted to see how much they requested. Um, they did increase, request quite an increase there, up to, I think it was about $225 million for commercial space stations next year, up from about $100 million that just got uh, spent this year. So that's a significant increase. Maybe not as much as I thought they would go for 
considering they have a lot of leverage behind saying, you know, we're going to need $500 million because have you seen what Russia's doing? I kind of thought, you know, if I was in charge of NASA and, and the White House, I guess I would have asked for that money, but that's not a surprise. <laughs> um, the other big one is to see how they're playing the human landing system side, which is the human scale moon landers that they're working on to take humans back to the moon in, in the mid-2020s as part of the Artemis program. Um, they are requesting an increase. It is not a giant increase, but that is tied to something they rolled out shortly before the budget was put out there to bring on a second competitor for lunar landing services. Uh, so for some context, I think right around this time last year, SpaceX was selected as the provider for the human missions to the moon on Artemis III. Um, they selected only a single lander in that case because they didn't have enough money in the budget to select more than one. They were hoping to get two or three on contract, but Congress gave them little money, and SpaceX requested only a little money in their deal. And NASA made what I thought at the time was an aggressive maneuver by saying, we're just going to make sure that we can get one of these landers done, so we'll go with SpaceX. Congress threw a little bit of a fit and said, we want competition in this. You always talk about competition. So NASA has said, yes, we do. So please, you know, send the money over and we'll make sure the competition happens. So they're beginning a new program that is going to onboard a second competitor. Uh, SpaceX is getting an extension of their first deal to provide another mission in the late 2020s to get to the moon. And this new competitor will be flying uh, an uncrewed mission and a crewed mission in that mid to late 2020 time frame as well. Now, what's interesting is if you look at how much money they requested, um, there's not enough money in that budget request. And specifically, when they put a request in, they show, here's what we're asking for this year, and here's projections over the next three or four years. If you look at how much money is in the budget over these years, there's not enough money for something like Blue Origin pitched the first time around that was uh, you know, 9 or $10 billion contract for a lunar lander. There's just not that much money in the, the budget, you know, considering everything else that's going on. There's maybe enough for four, five, six billion dollars over the course of five years. So that's going to definitely impact how these companies will bid for this second round. And we don't really know what shape that'll be in. There was some big partnerships around the first time with Blue Origin was working with Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and Draper. Sounds like there might be a little bit of a breakup on that side and they're all going to go it their own way. So uh, it'll be a very fun, uh, I think, spring or summer whenever these uh, proposals get in. And I've, I've got a lot of content coming up for the show, so I'm sure All you right. do too. We'll have to, we'll have to tune in. Uh, I, who do you think is the biggest winner um, if and when this, this budget request does get passed? Is this is this a big win for NASA's you know civilian side of things, or is this a big win for the commercial spaceflight industry? Honestly, I think it's both, depending on how Congress reacts. If... Um, it's hard to say that you know only getting five billion dollars in additional money for another lunar lander is a is a loss for NASA or commercial competitors. If I, I always struggle with this, that everyone says, well, the commercial sector now we can do things cheaper, we can do things on a slimmer budget because there's more commercialization, and then everyone talks about human lunar landers and they are like, well, this isn't as much as we requested in the Apollo days, and I'm like, yeah, we we're doing it different, right? <laughs> so why why do we need a ten billion dollar lander if SpaceX can do it for three? Can't you do it for five? That's a ton of money. Um, so I, I think there's there's a lot of wiggle room in there for NASA to have flexibility to make sure that they can get to their moon to the moon, and that's they've shown that's their priority, right? They, the first time around, they didn't say we'll just slow roll the program and pick two landers and do it over the course of ten years instead of five. They were aggressive. They said we're getting to the moon in five or six years. We're going to give all this money that we have to one competitor that can do it in time, and if Congress sends more, we'll buy some more landers. So they are very focused on getting to the moon, and it's up to these companies to be able to fit their plans around what NASA's got to work with. 
uh, rather than the other way around, which has not been that productive for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So we got the human landing system, uh, another key aspect of NASA's moon ambitions. Part of the Artemis program is the SLS rocket that's going to get the people to actually get on these <laughs> landers, right? You got to get them to the moon before they can go to the surface. Um, and, and NASA is currently testing the SLS rocket um, in the wet dress rehearsal, which has been going. Um, what what do we know about the wet dress rehearsal uh, and, and what we can expect uh, NASA is, is looking for uh, for this particular milestone test? This is a tough one for NASA because this is going exactly as expected, but they have to kind of spin it to make it seem like everything's cool. But they're testing a rocket. Like, you, you find stuff when you're testing. That's I hate the this is why we test trope, but like, you know, ideally NASA would have had more than one of these stages that they could have loaded on the launch pad and tested all these ground systems. But because of the way the programs run, there's not a lot of hardware to test. So it's not like SpaceX down in South Texas where they just are scrapping starships because they've got too many things made of stainless steel. Um, but that that was allowing them to find a lot of these problems quicker, whereas NASA had to wait for this one stage to get there to test out the mobile launcher, to test out the fueling systems. Uh, so it was expected that they would find some issues with the vehicle. Um, they did work through a bunch of issues last week when they began the testing, and this is to load propellant into the big orange core stage of the SLS. Um, they did start to load some propellant in there, had some issues with vents and valves and the typical uh, nerdy stuff that, that people track you know, when they're having issues with the launch vehicles. It's usually either a vent or a valve, and mm-hmm. in this case it was both vents and valves. Um, unfortunately, now they're having an issue with the upper stage of the vehicle, which is important to test, but honestly, it's derived from Delta IV launch vehicles, which have been flying for decades. So I'm not particularly worried about that. It's just unfortunate that they're not able to do the full-up testing right now. They're not going to be loading propellant into the upper stage. They're still going to load propellant into the core stage, so they'll be able to, again, this is the stuff that they haven't tested before. So, you know, those are the important parts uh, to, to get fueled on the launch pad right now. When they roll it back into the VAB, they're going to have to go into the upper stage, change out a valve, they haven't said whether that will require an additional round of fueling testing, which, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked to have them forego that and just say, we'll do that on the launch pad when it's time for launch. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing we're all waiting for is once they're finished the core stage testing, what are the knock-on effects of this upper stage issue? Is it going to add testing between now and when they're launching that they didn't plan for? You know, it's just, it's going to be a, a tricky few months for them to sort out. Mm-hmm. And do we know when they are planning to launch? Yeah, no. <laughs> it's like summer, maybe. Uh, I think they're they're still holding out. That yeah, we could probably make the June launch window. There's there's launch windows every couple of weeks mm-hmm. uh, because of where they're going in uh, around the moon. My guess is probably late summer at best right now, just because they do have to to figure out this issue. They do have to qualify the vent and the valve changeouts that they're doing. Uh, I, I assume there's going to be some more testing that has to happen. So uh, I'm I'm thinking late summer, maybe early fall at best. Gotcha. Um, let's turn the com- the conversation back to commercial space to to finish it off because um, this this one is is particularly interesting to me. So I'm would love to hear your insight on it. Um, Inspiration four that was the first all civilian mission to low Earth orbit that captivated most of us all of last year, either watching it from the space coast or following along on the Netflix series. Um, now the bankroller of that mission, Jared Isaacman. Um, he's going back to space and he's financing a series of SpaceX missions. First of all. What exactly is Isaacman funding with SpaceX? Effectively, the way to think about it is that Jared Isaacman is funding a private Gemini uh, program that you know NASA ran in the 1960s to develop a bunch of different capabilities that they knew they would need in the future for moon landings. So things like 
rendezvous, docking, spacewalks, a lot of the fundamental, uh, you know, fundamentals that you need to actually go to the moon. That's what NASA was targeting with the Gemini program. They figured out that humans could go to space with Mercury. They needed to develop a bunch of capabilities with Gemini to pull off moon landings in Apollo. Jared Isaacman sees this as a way to support SpaceX in developing new capabilities so that he can help, in his own way, push the future of human spaceflight forward. So on the first mission of the Polaris program, they're going to fly four people up to very high altitude. I forget if we know the exact altitude, but it's going to go higher than some of those Gemini missions. And they're going to do a couple of spacewalks. Um, I think it was like two spacewalks. Uh, So they're actually going to go outside the Dragon uh, which is going to be a pretty wild thing to see mm-hmm. because they got to do it old school. They've got to open the hatch, vent it all down to vacuum, so everyone's going to be wearing a spacesuit. It brings up the question of, is a spacewalk, when you're in a spacesuit, exposed to vacuum, or do you have to actually like grab the outside of a spaceship? I don't really know who's the spacewalker there and who, because if I'm in a vacuum, I'm, I'm a spacewalker. I think that counts. Yeah, that counts. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not gatekeeping around that. Um, but the idea is to have a series of these missions that push the capabilities of SpaceX forward. And also, let's be honest, to go to space and have some fun doing it uh, on Jared Isaacman's side. Uh, and I think that's okay. I don't. I, I feel weird about even the Axiom mission that's up there right now. There's a lot of um, talk about how much science they're doing on these missions and how much, you know, they're doing all this outreach. And they're not just going to sit and look out the window. I'm like, please sit and look out the window. You're mm-hmm. going up to space. Like, that's part of the thing, right? Um, so anyway, the, the he's buying three missions is, is what's stated right now. One's on the Dragon that'll be flying sometime in the next year. The final one will be the first crewed flight of Starship, SpaceX's new vehicle. A lot of murky details around what is in the middle there, uh, whether it'll be on a Dragon or a Starship. But uh, I think, you know, the, the point of this is that they haven't decided yet. But what they decided is they're going to try to improve the capabilities of SpaceX's human spaceflight department. And this is a, a big win for SpaceX, right? Because you're getting this private investment coming in to pay for these missions. And as you mentioned, Jared gets to go to space again. You know that that's great for him. Uh, but you know, there's there's kind of this you know altruistic motivation that he wants to help SpaceX, and this is kind of his way into that. So I mean, SpaceX is is the big winner here, right? Ultimately, absolutely. I mean, look, honestly, this is the same way that I run my podcast. People pay me money because they like what I do, and I keep doing it. And and <laughs> SpaceX is basically running a really cool Patreon here. Jared Isaacman <laughs> likes what SpaceX does, wants to see more of it. We'll pay them money to do more of it. And um, I mean, SpaceX. They're a business that needs to turn a profit, so they're not going to put a lot of investment in areas that there isn't payoff for. So if they know there are customers that are willing to pay for spacewalks, they're going to go ahead and develop that capability. It's the same way they work with NASA. Um, They didn't start building a cargo vehicle for ISS missions until they knew that NASA wanted one. NASA wanted one, so they stepped up and had a really good proposal on how to pull that off. So they've created a partnership around that. Same with human spaceflight in general. Mm -hmm. Jared Isaacman is not NASA, but he does have a couple billion dollars to spend on going to space. And if he's interested in spacewalking, SpaceX knows that they will need that in the future, too. So let's get started on that work, you know, now rather than in five years. Well, Anthony, I listened to your podcast despite you not sending me to space. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. My my, uh, rewards for Patreon are a lot lower than that. (laughs) We've been speaking with Anthony Colangelo. He's the creator and host of the Main Engine Cutoff podcast, also the co-host of Off Nominal. You can find more information at MainEngineCutoff.com or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Anthony, thanks for joining us. There's plenty more to talk about. We'll have you back very soon. Yeah, thanks so much. I hope to be down in Florida late summer, early fall, as I've now predicted. (laughs) See you there. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Production assistance this week from our intern, Beatrice Oliveira. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.